we're in a little series that is called The Good News. The Good News. We're used to hearing terms like evangelism, sharing the gospel, but really those are just fancy terms for the good news of Jesus Christ. I like the way Pastor Clive put it in his first message. The message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as atonement for our sins is the singular thread that runs through the entire scripture and it connects God's redemptive plan for mankind. The message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as atonement for our sins. Now, I know that for many of us, the idea of sharing the gospel uh, is just intimidating. Okay? It's, whenever you hear people mention it, you're just like, oh man, I can't do that. That's for the professionals. That's for um, our missionaries. You know, I'm just a normal guy. I find it easier to share the good news about the weather or the good news about uh, baby pictures or about the weekend sports results. But I find it difficult to share the good news about Jesus Christ. So in today's message, I want us to look at why, why we need to share the good news. As I was trying to illustrate to the children, we can't expect the world to get excited about the gospel if we're not excited about it. Okay? If we don't um, understand the importance of this life-changing good news. But knowing why people need to hear the gospel will also help fan the flame in our own lives. Okay, to give us boldness, to give us love, and to give us wisdom to be able to share Jesus with this broken world. And as a bonus, we also get some pointers from Scripture uh, as to how we are to go about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. This book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 16. Okay, the book of Acts was written by uh, Luke, the same person who wrote the gospel according to Luke. You'll see that it's a historical, uh, but yet a fast-moving and an action-packed account of how believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the gospel, the good news, to both Jews and to Gentiles. We see how the church rapidly grows uh, from humble Jewish beginnings in an upper room until uh, the very palace of the Roman emperor in Rome. To give you an idea of how this gospel spreads, we find that in the book of Acts, 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands are mentioned. Now, as with the gospel accounts, we find that the book gives us summaries of events. Um, of the miracles and of the sermons or speeches that took place um, and given by various people. It's not a comprehensive account, but it gives us enough um, to know what happened and how the apostles operated. And then the act, uh, book of Acts can almost be divided into two parts. Uh, the first half focuses more on the apostle Peter, and then the second half focuses more on the apostle Paul. And this morning we are going to study... Paul's uh, encounter with the people of Athens. Sure. <laughs> okay, so we're going to study Paul's encounter with the people of Athens in Acts uh, 17, verse 16 to 34. Okay, so this event takes place in what we call Paul's second missionary journey. Okay. Uh, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, were preaching in Berea uh, before Paul was sent away because... Uh, 
his safety was in danger due to uh, uproar and protests from Jews that had followed them from Thessalonica. So Paul is sent away. He finds himself in the Greek city, uh, Greek city of Athens, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him there. So I'm going to first read the whole passage to you, then we'll focus in verse by verse, and then lastly look at how we can apply this to our lives today. Before we read from the Word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you that you call out to us not just to become your followers, not just to become children of the living God, but Lord, that you want to equip us and use us to bring this good news to others. Lord, I pray this morning as each of us have our own struggles, each of us have our own questions and maybe even doubts about certain aspects of the faith. Thank you that we can know that we belong to you and therefore that you want to use us in whichever capacity to share the good news with others. And I pray that as we read it, your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts in every area where it's necessary so that we may have boldness, we may have love and wisdom to share the good news with others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Acts uh, chapter 17 from verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, some said, what, this, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he, was, he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners... Uh, who were there, spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I, found, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life, uh, gives to all uh, life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood, or one man, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, 
but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this uh, by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the setting for this account is the city of Athens. It's a Gentile city in Greece uh, that had a small population of Jews. The city was dedicated to the goddess Athena, after whom it is named. This is the greatest city of cultural heritage um, in Greece. Hundreds of years ago, it was the home of the great philosophers such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. It was the birthplace of democracy, and at that time it was still the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It was a place that was steeped in tradition, superstition, and immorality, because the city itself was full of idols, you see. It's a city that was filled with examples of artistic beauty, and it was famous for its statues of the Greek gods, but also for spectacular temples that were dedicated to these gods. The famous, or most famous of which was the Parthenon, the temple that was dedicated to Athena. In fact, pagan idolatry was so rampant that one contemporary writer at the time said that it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. So, I'd like to show you just a slide of some of the, the, the uh, statues of the Greek gods that you found there. So. As you can see, it's wonderful artwork, uh, beautifully made, but what's interesting about them is that they all look human. Okay, they, um, they all look like us. So if you read any of the Greek mythology, you'll get the idea that the gods basically are just super-powered versions of us. They didn't create the world. Uh, they themselves were either created or they were the offspring of the first gods. These gods were just as cruel as petty and as concerned with their own needs and desires uh, as human beings are. So while a person might have shown devotion to one or two specific gods, they would usually end up sacrificing to all the gods just to appease them and to keep the gods from causing trouble in their lives. This is one of the reasons that they have an altar to the unknown god, because there might be a god out there who will get angry at us if we don't worship him, so let's just cover our bases. We don't want him to become angry at us. All right, so as Paul saw these things, as he saw these statues, as he saw these goings on, it says that his spirit was provoked within him. According to Strong's dictionary, the word spirit can have a wide range of meanings. It can mean uh, wind, breath, soul, even the Holy Spirit, depending on the context. But here it's referring to Paul's soul, his inner being. It's not describing some spiritual experience that he had in the moment. It just says that he was, he was troubled in his soul and his heart was grieved. This is wrong. But he was also stirred up and provoked. I have to do something about the situation. I like the way Matthew Henry puts it. He says, Paul was filled with concern for the glory of God, 
which he saw was being given to idols, and with compassion to the souls of men, which he saw thus enslaved to Satan. He did not become hot-headed or impulsive or uh, anything like that. Rather, we see that in the next verse, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So these uh, Gentile worshippers who were with the Jews, they were what they were also called God-fearers. They were Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel, but they did not become full converts to Judaism because that would require them to be circumcised. But Paul knew his audience. That's the point. He was sharing the gospel with everyone who would listen. Um, and we can see that from his other speeches or sermons that uh, were recorded for us in Acts, uh, that his core message always remained the same. That didn't change. But he adapted his method of argumentation as the audience changed. When he spoke to the Jews, he would just start quoting Old Testament scripture after scripture okay, because they knew them. But as we see here, when he's talking to pagan people, he takes a slightly different angle. Let's read in verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, or conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Because the, uh, the quote I read from Pastor Clive earlier, that the gospel is the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as atonement for our sins. So when the Bible says that Paul preached Jesus, this is what he was preaching. But it also says that he preached about the resurrection. In other words, the resurrection of human beings. Death is not the end for us. There is a life after death. Now some people react by calling him a babbler. Now, as you can imagine, that's not exactly a compliment. Let me just quickly say a word about that. If some organization invited me to come and give a talk about uh, astrophysics, you know, uh, it wouldn't take them long before they uh, said to each other, what is this babbler trying to say? You know, because I didn't know anything about the subject. I mean, so for me to try and give a 20-minute talk, I would have to mumble and stumble and uh, you know, try and waffle to get through the time. But that's not why they called Paul a babbler. That Paul was not uh, incoherent, he was not unsure about his message, he was not unable to defend his own claims, but rather they viewed him as someone who maybe listened to too many stories or fables or myths. Surely, Paul, this message can't be based in reality. It can't be rooted in the truth. It's too strange. So who were these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics? Okay, they were the dominant schools of philosophy at that time. And they're also in opposition to one another on many doctrines, so they didn't agree on their many beliefs. So first, the Epicureans. The Epicureans, they denied that the gods cared about humanity. To them, if the gods even existed, they were far off, distant, busy with their own thing. They were not active in the world, and they certain, certainly didn't uh, have any interest in giving human beings justice, and dealing with things like right and wrong, or showing any compassion. They also believed that the body and the soul of a human being ceased, and went out of existence at death. There's no life after death. In fact, um, Epicurus said that uh, the fact that people are afraid of death and afraid of judgment is what causes our unhappiness. 
So the aim for every man is happiness in Epicureanism. So get rid of pain, get rid of the idea of fear, of death, of judgment, and you will be happy. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were what we call pantheistic. Pantheistic, pantheism basically just means that everything together, collectively, is God. So the animals, the trees, the rocks, the galaxies and stars, the gods, human beings, all of us together are God. God is identical with the creation. It's quite a strange way to think about things, but, but if God is identical to creation, then he's not personal. There's no way you can speak of God loving us or, or knowing us in that sense, because we're all a little part of God. But because we're all part of God, there's no God that's overseeing the whole universe. There's no God keeping everything in check. So they were very fatalistic. You know, whatever happens is going to happen because there's no other choice. And so it's useless to get excited about the good things or to get sad about bad things because everything just happens. And so they were very emotionally detached. They didn't get uh, phased by their circumstances. They never showed things like happiness or sadness. But we read in verse 19 then that these all took and brought uh, Paul to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what is this new doctrine of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the uh, foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So if we quickly jump back to the previous verse, uh, we see that Paul is accused of proclaiming uh, foreign deities. Now the Areopagus was called the, the Hill of Ares, which was the Greek god of war, or Mars Hill, which is the Roman god of war. But on this hill, the court of Areopagus met. This was a long-established council that uh, exercised civil and religious authority over the people of Athens. Um, it was quite serious because about 300 years before Christ, the uh, philosopher Socrates I mentioned earlier was actually condemned to death by the Council of the Areopagus because they said that he was subverting the minds of the youths of Athens away from their gods. Okay, so what Paul was facing was in fact a trial. Now I'm going to quickly show you. So this is an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like in their day. You see at the bottom here, this is the Areopagus. Um, hill of Ares, and there at the back, on top of that hill, we see the Parthenon I mentioned earlier, that magnificent temple that was dedicated to Athena. So this is picture now. This is Paul is standing down here. He's standing in front of these people, and they want to know what this means, what Paul is preaching, and this, with the realization now that. Uh, Paul is actually in trouble, okay? If he says something and they're not happy with his answer, his very life might well be in danger. But then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Now let's think about it, the situation in our day. How would you and I have answered them? What would, what would our uh, angle of attack have been? 
Um, I've written down a couple of popular approaches that you also might have encountered uh, on the street or maybe on TV or in a sermon. So how about this? Men of Athens, you idiots, you're worshipping false gods made from stone, but you continue doing so because you love your sin and you only want to do what is evil. And I'm telling you now that the God's day of judgment is coming and he's going to throw you all into hell unless you repent. Or how about this? Men of Athens, do you have all sorts of problems in your life? Are you depressed or lonely or, um, or anxious? Are you looking for answers? Have you tried everything else and nothing's worked? Don't you want to try Jesus? Or how about this one? Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And that's very important. After all, you know, all religion uh, pleases God, and it would be very wrong of me to come here and to uh, impose my uh, idea of uh, uh, religion or philosophy upon you. And, you know, you've got your culture, I've got my culture, and that's all fine. Okay, as we see, Paul doesn't use any of these three approaches. Okay. Actually, we see that how he answers them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is actually astounding. Because firstly, he says that He's not preaching a new God. He's not preaching a foreign deity, but one that they are worshipping already. He says to them, no, no, I'm preaching this unknown God which you are already worshipping. But because you are worshipping him in ignorance, I want to bring the truth of this God to you more fully. So immediately that nullifies the charge against him that he was preaching foreign deities, and now he has their attention. So we see, Paul goes on and he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Okay, I'm going to actually go back to that slide. Sorry, but, uh, uh, Let's go back to that. Okay, but uh, what I wanted to show you is if you can remember that uh, slide with the. Um, let's see if you can. Okay, anyway, let's carry on. The, uh, you had the hill of uh, Areopagus down here, and you had the Parthenon, which was on top. So, what Paul was doing, and that's why I wanted to, to show it to you, is that in the midst of this huge temple, okay, with this wonderful, magnificent temple built to the goddess Athena in the background, Paul says, oh, thank you, that God is not, he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. Can I think of how those people uh, would have understood that? Thousands and thousands and thousands, maybe even millions in today's uh, currency was spent on building this magnificent temple to their God. And Paul says, the true God has no interest in buildings like this. He's not he doesn't stay there. He's not worshipped by human hands uh, as though he needed anything because he is the one who created everything. He gives life. He gives breath to all things. So in contrast to the religion and the teachings uh, of the Epicureans and the Stoics, God is the creator. He's active. He's the giver of life. But here we also see the first reason why Paul says that we need the good news of Jesus Christ. Because there is no other way for human beings to gain God's forgiveness and favor. 
There's nothing that we can give to God that uh, would force him to forgive us or to give to us in return. He doesn't need anything. As I said, if building this temple was not enough, what hope do you and I have of doing anything that's going to please God out of our own strength? All right, so that's reason number one, because there is no other way for human beings to gain God's forgiveness and favor. Then we read in verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here again we see Paul contrast the message of Jesus with uh, the religion of his audience. God is personal. Okay? He says here that he is close to each one of us. And he placed us all on the earth at the exact time and exact place that he wanted to. Our lives then have meaning. Okay? Because unlike the Stoics who believe that everything's just going to happen because it happens, uh, God placed you and me here with a purpose. Okay, with an ability to make decisions and to influence and to change this world for better. Okay, God sustains and upholds the universe. He is not impersonal. We also see here the second reason why Paul says we need the good news of Jesus Christ. We are obligated to seek after God. That is why we are here. That is what is required of each and every human being. Okay, it says there that um, he, God made us so that we should seek the Lord. But God is only found in Jesus Christ, in nothing else or no one else. If we look then at verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So here Paul quotes from two Greek poets that they all would have known at the time, Epimenides and Aratus. But what's ironic is that uh, in both of these poets, when they were writing, were speaking about Zeus, who was, as we saw, the chief of the gods. But... Zeus could not claim to be the father of humanity because, as I said, he didn't create anything. He was certainly not the one who upholds the universe. Okay, he was too busy with his own schemes and his own plots uh, to have anything to do with human beings. But Paul comes now and he, he, he applies those attributes to the one true living God. God is the one who created all things and upholds them. We are made in his image. We are his offspring. But then Paul points to their idols and their statues and he says that you actually have it the wrong way around. Okay, even though these things are beautiful and they're very skillfully made, they're gods made in the image of man. But the true and living God, however, made man in his image. We are from him, not him from us. So reason number three why Paul says we need the good news of Jesus Christ is we are God's children. We belong to him. Okay, when sin entered the world, we rebelled against our Father, and we've been trying to do it our own way ever since. Yet we are not free to live as we want or just seek out our own pleasure or our own happiness and then die one day. We must reflect the image 
of the one who made us for himself. And the only way that fallen, broken human beings can be made to once again resemble our Father is to be born again, to have a new birth. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. Please hear me what I say this morning. The gospel is not just an invitation. It is a command. It's not simply an invitation. I think we should be careful to be too quick to tell an unbeliever that Jesus loves you and He's got a wonderful plan for your life. Because unless that unbeliever understands that they are a rebel sinner and that they have an obligation uh, to bow before their king and to ask for forgiveness, then they won't really ever understand the need for repentance. Uh, To illustrate this, I actually heard this play out in real life. Um, A guy was doing street evangelism, and he stopped the man and he said to him, Jesus loves you. And before he could finish his sentence, the man said to him, then I have nothing to worry about. And he walked away. Now, of course, Jesus loves everyone in the sense that we are God's offspring. We are his creation. We are his children. But the love that he has for human beings in general is not the same as the love that he has for us, his children, his believers, those who are of his sheep. And that that, uh, echoes what we saw in reason number two, that we have an obligation to seek God and to follow after Him. Then verse 31, He commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Now I I caricatured the message of judgment earlier. Uh, but only to show you that there is a proper context in which to talk about the judgment of God. Contrary to the Epicureans who said, well, there's no life after death, so there's no judgment, so don't worry about it. Paul stresses that there's truth about God's judgment. Okay? He says it's a certainty. The day is fixed when judgment will take place. And it's a certainty because God raised Jesus Christ, the one who is the just and righteous judge, from the dead. So reason number four why Paul says we need the good news of Jesus Christ because there is a day of judgment for everyone who does not repent. Paul says that there is life after death and that all those whose sins have not been atoned for by Jesus Christ will face both the consequences and the punishment for their sins they committed against this infinitely holy and righteous God. And when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, uh, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So it's unclear to me whether Paul managed to finish his, uh, his speech or if he was cut off by these people who were mocking him, uh, because it's clear that some people were not convinced by what he said. Others found it more compelling. Dionysius was one of the judges of the Council of the Areopagus. Okay, so he was very prominent and influential, and he was swayed by what Paul said. I wondered if I should give this to you, but as we were speaking about church history earlier, um, there was actually, we, we found some writings by a guy claiming to be Dionysius the Areopagite. Okay, and the, uh, 
probably a monk who wanted to have his own message spread throughout the world, so he chose a biblical character and said, this is his writings, and he started spreading it. And that, for a while, it had some limited impact, but very quickly it was denounced as a forgery. Because if anybody uh, ever tells you that, then you know it's not really this guy. We don't know much more about him than what is given in the Word. And we don't have any information about the woman who's named Damaris. Okay, so why she is named is not clear to us specifically. Um, but uh, I want you to see that, uh, in a sense, we can take comfort from the fact that the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, even he did not have a 100% success rate in his evangelism. Okay? And we also saw that in the last two weeks with the other evangelists. Okay? No one has a 100% success rate. Now you might say, Louis, okay, this was still the Apostle Paul, a man called by Jesus himself, gifted by the Spirit to preach, gifted with the working of powerful miracles. How can he be an example to me? How can I hope to do what Paul did? Again, I love what Pastor Clive said about the apostles. He said, we as believers are filled with the same Holy Spirit that empowered Paul. We might not be gifted in the same way that he was, but we have the same Spirit at work within us. And we have been gifted uniquely for our situation and for our time and for our location. It's extremely important that you understand that our intention with this series is not to guilt trip anyone um, for not sharing the gospel with others. Okay? The intention is to place the focus on the fact that God has always and is still using normal, ordinary human beings, men and women, to build His church through the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So lastly, by way of application, I want to ask you some questions that can help you identify where your heart is regarding the sharing of the good news. Number one, is your heart provoked by the state of unbelief and idolatry in the world? And how does this cause you to act? Do you feel bad about it? Does it make you feel hopeless, helpless? Or do we say like Paul, this is wrong. I have to do something about it. Now I'm not calling us to God and to start doing things out of guilt, but I'm saying it begins with prayer. Say, Lord, help me understand what my heart looks like. Am I just feeling bad for these people? Or do I actually have a desire to be obedient and to do something about it, whatever that might mean for you? But secondly, do we know our audience? We see that Paul knew his audience very well. I think of my own life. When I was growing up, going to school, um, even the children whose parents didn't come to church would drop them off for Sunday school. And so you could speak about Jesus and they would have an idea of what you were talking about. But more and more today we find that there are people who have never heard about Jesus in their life. Don't know what, who is Jesus. What is he? Um, and we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware when we're speaking to people about what their background is. Okay, what do they know? What do they believe? And secondly, we see that uh, Paul knew the culture of the society. We see that the Athenians, they were obsessed with hearing new things. New things, new things. What's the new thing? And how much truer is that in our society today with social media and breaking news and just give me the headlines. What's the next big thing? No, the article's too long. I didn't read it, but what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Okay, we can, if we know these things, we know what our society and our culture um, is like, we can, we can plan, we can put a, a strategy in place to engage people. 
Thirdly, does our understanding of the gospel message agree with Paul's message about the gospel? Is it Jesus and the resurrection? Or is it just get out of hell free? Get your best life now. Number four, do we know what we believe? We don't all have to be experts in theology and um, be able to give off verses like Paul did. But I think often we are afraid to share with people because we don't really know what we believe and we're afraid that somebody's going to ask us a question that we don't know the answer to. So do we know what we believe? Are we convinced by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as atonement for our sins? And then lastly, do we know why we need to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Do we know why? I've given you four reasons this morning. Because there is no other way for human beings to gain God's forgiveness and favor. Number two, because we are obliged and obligated to seek after God. And three, as God's children, we belong to Him and we must reflect His image in us. Number four, there is a day of judgment for everyone who does not repent. So please go and spend some time with the Lord alone in this week and ask yourself and ask God to show you what your attitude is and also how you can make a difference. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and stand on a street corner and, um, and do what the Apostle Paul did, but all of us can do something. All of us have a gifting. So may you be encouraged by this message this morning to go and find out what that is and to go and do it in the strength and the equipping power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength, but in the strength of God that he has given us to do this task. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you so much for what the Bible calls the great cloud of witnesses. Lord, those who have come before us, from whom we can learn, from whom we can take comfort, can take encouragement. The apostles, the prophets, the people who stood up for the truth, and those who were just faithful in their everyday living. I pray that as we spend time in your word, that you would help us to come to a place where we are able to do what you've called us to do, to share the gospel with others, whether it's financial support, Lord, whether it's giving of a tract, whether it's just spending time in prayer, whether it's engaging someone at work or wherever we might be. May we do it in boldness, Lord, in love and in wisdom, knowing what we believe, the good news of Jesus Christ and how important that is for a dying world out there. We pray that everything we do would bring glory to your name and bring furtherance to your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.